Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for November 28, 2022. Here's today's rundown. Medicare contractors and CMS are in the crosshairs of the Office of Inspector General. Dr. John K. Hall reports our lead story. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Matthew Albright, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, and Tiffany Ferguson. Now substituting today for Chuck Buck is attorney and physician Dr. John K. Hall. Thank you, Clark. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving on Thursday and supported their local small businesses on Saturday. Well, 2023 is only a month away, and as you know, that means the usual changes to the rules. In my Rack Monitor webcast on Thursday, I'll be reviewing the changes to the inpatient-only list and other things you need to know, along with at least one thing you wish you didn't know. And as we've discussed here over and over, at some point, HHS is going to stop renewing the COVID-19 public health emergency. And when that happens, there's going to be some major changes. But it's going to be a billing, compliance, and audit mess. Why? Because the PHE ending does not mean the end of all of the waivers. For example, the 2023 rules will allow telehealth to continue for mental health services with no expiration. HHS has already indicated that most of the other telehealth waivers will continue to be in effect for 151 days after the end of the PHE. On the other hand, when the waivers expire, the waiver of offering patient choice and having UR committee meetings ends immediately, despite the fact that some surveyors think those waivers ended in 2021. And both SNFs and ERFs can use waivers to accept patients who normally would not qualify based on the three-day inpatient rule and the three-hour rule, respectively. But while those waivers will end immediately, the patient will continue to have coverage under the waiver throughout their stay. So the audits will be really confusing to watch. And adding to that confusion, the waivers will allow physicians supervising cardiac and pulmonary rehab to provide that supervision remotely. But for some unknown reason, CMS decided to extend this flexibility, not 151 days, but to the end of the calendar year in which the waiver expires. So keep an eye on the audits and ensure they apply the right rules to the right situation, despite CMS's promise that their auditors will apply the rules in place on the date of service. I am certain that you trust them to do this properly as much as I do. Changing subject, there was an interesting Department of Justice settlement with New York Presbyterian Hospital. The hospital discovered that a physician was changing implanted defibrillator batteries before they were due to be exchanged. Now, obviously, an ICD battery exchange is more complex than changing batteries in a flashlight, but probably not as complex as changing the battery in your iPhone. But in many of those cases, there's no indication to change a battery that's operating properly. The physician scheduled the procedure, and the hospital billed Medicare for 115 such patients. As a result, New York Press paid a $2.5 million fine. When we discuss screening for medical necessity, I'm sure battery replacement would not make anyone's top 10 list. But if it could happen to a prestigious institution like New York Presbyterian, it could happen to you. Remember, 
there must be medical necessity for every single service. Back to you, John. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. You just got to love increased regulation and decreased clarity. That was Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Solutions, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now's the time for the Monitor Monday's RAC Report with healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. Today, I want to talk about upcoming Medicare audits targeted toward acute care hospitals. In September 2022, OIG reported that Medicare Part B overpaid critical access hospitals and docs for same services. OIG reports are blinking signs that flash the future Medicare audits to come. Now, this is only a three-minute segment, so be sure to tune in on December 8th for the RAC Monitor webinar, Warning for Acute Care Hospitals, You're a Target for Overpayment Audits. I will be presenting on this topic in much more depth. For OIG's report regarding the ACHs, OIG audited 40,000 Medicare Part B claims with half submitted by critical access hospitals and the rest submitted by healthcare practitioners for the same services provided to beneficiaries on the same dates of service. OIG studied claims from March 1st, 2018 to February 28, 2021 and found almost 100% non-compliance, which constituted almost a million in overpayment to providers. According to the OIG report, CMS didn't have a system to edit claims to prevent and detect any duplicate claims, as in the services rendered at an acute hospital and by a physician elsewhere. As you know, a critical access hospital cannot bill Part B for any outpatient services delivered by a healthcare practitioner unless that provider reassigns the claim to the facility, which then bills Part B. However, OIG's audit found that providers billed and got reimbursed for services they did perform, but reassigned their billing rights to the critical access hospital. On a different note, I wanted to give a shout out to ASMAC, which is the American Society of Medical Association Council, Attorneys Advocating for America's Physicians. It is comprised of GCs of healthcare entities and presidents of state medical societies. The topics at their conferences are cutting edge and interesting. I presented there last week in Hawaii, although thankfully all their conferences are not in Hawaii because that is a far trip for someone from the East Coast. Back to you. Thanks, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of practice. And coming up at eight minutes after the hour, you will hear from Matthew Albright, David Glazer, and Tiffany Ferguson. It's Monday, November 28th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Please stand by. Could your facility be vulnerable for a costly audit? How can you prepare and make sure that your defenses are up? During an exclusive Rack Monitor webcast, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel will explain in simple, easy-to-understand language the peril of overpayment audits. She will also describe your legal defenses. You need to be ready for the audits. They're coming, and we're here to help. Register now to attend Warning for Acute Care Hospitals. You're a target for overpayment audits. Register at the Rack Monitor store or by clicking the link. Hurry, webcast attendance is filling up fast. Register now for the crucially important webcast, Warning for Acute Care Hospitals. 
You're a target for overpayment audits. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David, and what could possibly be risky today? Well, John, it's failing to give the Upjohn warning. Now, it may sound like I've just disparaged or threatened you or something like that, but no, this is totally different. This is just a description of the statement lawyers make at the start of an employee interview during an internal investigation that's a result of the Supreme Court decision involving the famous drug company. Uh, An Upjohn employee was interviewed by company counsel. Counsel failed to explain to the employee that they represented the company and that they were not representing the employee as an individual. The Supreme Court concluded that because the employee believed that they were talking with their own counsel, the company didn't have the ability to release information discovered uh, during that interview because the employee thought they were consulting with their own lawyer. Because of that Supreme Court case, lawyers around the country now routinely begin interviews with their empl- with employees by emphasizing that the lawyer represents the company, not the individual. While most lawyers are very familiar with this warning, it's common for non-lawyers to conduct internal investigations. When a non-lawyer interviews an employee at the direction of company counsel, the interviewer should be using the same upjohn warning used by counsel if the interview is hoping that the interview is being done under attorney-client privilege. Now, it's certainly true that employees are a bit less likely to believe discussions with a non-lawyer is protected by privilege. But when the interviewer is working at the direction of counsel and so informs the employee, they're likely giving the employee that same expectation of confidentiality that can exist in a lawyer interview. So if you're doing internal investigations, it's a good idea to understand how an upjohn warning works. Different lawyers use different approaches to provide the information. Done ham-handedly, and I've seen it done really poorly, it has the potential to scare the employee and reduce the likelihood they'll cooperate with an investigation. It often results in the question, do I need a lawyer? There's most definitely an art to allaying the fear of an interviewee. My upjohn warning goes something like this. So I've been lucky enough to work with, and then I'll insert the organization's name, so uh, uh, Mercy Hospital, for over uh, the past few years. Now you know Lisa, the general counsel. If I'm about to get on a call with Lisa, I will typically say, I need to call my client. But that is not technically accurate. Lisa isn't my client. She's my friend, and I talk to her all the time, but technically my client is the hospital and not Lisa, not the CEO, and not you. Now, everything Lisa tells me or you tell me is confidential, and it's protected by the attorney-client privilege. But that privilege belongs to the company. If the company ultimately chooses to share that information with the government, it could. Now, I want to assure you I have a lot of discretion about what to share. If you tell me something sensitive about someone who works here, I've got the discretion to protect your confidentiality. But I just need to make sure you know that I'm not your personal lawyer, just like I'm not Lisa's or the CEO's. And there may be some times where something you share with me might wind up being disclosed. I can't promise you everything you say will be confidential. So, John, today's lesson is that when you're interviewing employees, it's important to make sure that in the immortal words of that rock band, The Who, they know, who are you? Doot, 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 doot.
to you, John. <laughs> Thank you, David. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. What do we need to know today about social determinants? Good morning, all, and good morning, John. Thank you to Marie for covering my segment last week as my family and I snuck away for a quick little vacation. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving and is working through those leftovers. Over the last couple of weeks, Marie and I reported on social spending evaluating healthcare organizations and insurance companies. Both reports highlighted the limited contributions being provided to charity care per net income. So today I'd actually like to focus on some major contributions in the private sector, known as Corporate Social Responsibility, CSR. So I'm going to mention reported leaders in key, the key domains for SDOH. That's economic stability, education access and quality, healthcare access and quality, neighborhood and built environment and social and community context. So although there's a lot of companies out there that are doing great things, here's just a couple examples for my segment today. So to better support our growing issues with maternity death and complications um, and help maternity care, Netflix actually offers employees 52 weeks of paid parental leave to both the birth parent and non-birth parent. Wells Fargo is donating on average 1.5% of its revenue to charitable causes each year to more than 14,500 nonprofits. So comparison in our report in 2021, health insurance companies donated 0.67%. Tom's originally was donating one pair of shoes for every pair purchased. However, due to increasing complaints from other shoe companies, shame on you, for impacting the sales market, they have expanded their donations to now cover people in need of prescription glasses, medical treatments, and safe drinking water, as well as building businesses in developing countries to create jobs. Overall, Tom's donates one-third of all of its profits to grassroots campaigns. Starbucks has initiated new efforts to support military personnel transitioning back into the community by prioritizing hiring of veterans, spouses, and contributing donations in military-based communities. So far, Starbucks has impacted 440,000 individuals and supported 25 military families and additional programs. They're also working to increase their workforce and leadership presence for Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And finally, a shout out to Mackenzie Scott. As if she's listening or reading my article, uh, for her social contribution since her divorce to Jeff Bezos, Amazon CEO in 2020, Ms. Scott has donated $12.8 billion, 20% of her net worth to local communities to improve such areas as youth programs, housing, health outcomes, and ranging across 1,200 nonprofit organizations. For reference, again, to that last week, 20 health insurance, the top 20 health insurance companies have donated a combined $1.87 billion. So she's donated more than $10 billion in the last two years to social community programs. So for our listener survey, is your employer making contributions to support SDOH initiatives this year? 
yes, no, or unsure. And with that, back to you, John. Thanks, Tiffany. Tiffany Ferguson is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And we'll have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the show. It's the holiday season, and no one is more prepared to celebrate than MedLearn Media. Now, through December 5th, you can save 20% on educational products from Rack Monitor, ICD-10 Monitor, and MedLearn Publishing. The 20% discount cannot be used with any other discount or special offer. Again, now through December 5th, receive a 20% discount on Rack Monitor, ICD-10 Monitor, and MedLearn Publishing educational products. To take advantage of this special 20% discount, Enter the promotional code CYBER22 at the time of checkout. Up next, the Monitor Monday legislative update with Matthew Albright. The Monitor Monday legislative update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Thank you, John. As listeners of this program know, one of the main themes we've seen moving out of the pandemic is a change in the way Americans access their health care. We see this with the uptick in telehealth use, increased interest in home health, and state efforts to provide better access to health care in areas hit hardest during the last few years. But a recent report suggests another change may be unfolding, and the way the health care system is responding could impact the future of primary care in this country. A 2022 study entitled How Usual is Usual Primary Care examined patient access to primary care providers and patient satisfaction with that primary care. The study found a 10% drop in Americans that used an ongoing primary care doctor during the pandemic, and the use of primary care doctors has been slow to recover. Young and minority communities had the highest rates of having, quote, no usual source of care. So if fewer people are using primary care physicians, how are they getting health care? One answer could be the urgent care and retail health clinics that we see popping up at, uh, at our neighborhood strip malls and shopping centers. Or take, for instance, the recent spate of openings of Walmart health clinics. The company recently announced 16 additional health centers located directly next to Walmart super centers that will provide primary care services seven days a week. The first Walmart Health locations opened just this year, with 96% of patients reporting satisfaction with the service. What is most unique about these clinics, found currently in just five states, is that their payment model features upfront pricing listed on the clinic's website. For example, at a Jacksonville area clinic, an annual checkup is listed at $90, while a flu test is $64. While Walmart is opening brick-and-mortar clinics, Amazon is expanding its healthcare offerings by opening Amazon Clinic, a virtual healthcare clinic that will see patients messaging providers through a portal for help with common care concerns, including asthma, hair loss, contraception, and allergies. Amazon Clinic patients will select their concerns on a website, choose from a list of telehealth providers that treat that condition, and then connect the two through a purely message-based portal. Amazon Clinic will treat fewer conditions than the Walmart health centers, but they have the upfront pricing in common, meaning patients can estimate medical expenses in a way that can be challenging in the traditional primary care model. 
This news all comes after HHS put out a request for information over the summer on how to strengthen primary care. Also this summer, the Association of American Medical Colleges put out a report that found that the nation faces a projected shortage of up to 124,000 primary care physicians in the next 12 years, even while the number of Americans over the age of 65 is expected to increase by nearly 50%. And as many listeners know, and a 2019 JAMA study proved, a greater number of primary care physicians equates to lower mortality in a population. So, John, as the government considers how best to promote primary care, proponents of the Walmarting of American Healthcare hope that their results will speak for themselves. Back to you, John. Thanks, Matthew. The Walmarting of Healthcare. We're going to need that again later. That was Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Cellus. Coming up, my report on the OIG investigation of Medicare contractors and CMS. Now is the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday's listener survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, all. So I asked, is your employer making contributions to support SDOH initiatives this year? And about, let's say, 36.5% said yes. Uh, about half of 55% were unsure. Um, and I would just say it's probably a good time this holiday season. Hopefully, they're reporting out where they're contributing and what they're doing in need of economic education, healthcare, and serving communities. And maybe it's something that people can get and you guys can get involved in. As you heard from Clark Anthony, at the top of the broadcast, the OIG has Medicare contractors and CMS in its crosshairs. But one of the few things that's more fun than watching the OIG audit the MA's plan, MA plans is watching the OIG audit the government, particularly CMS. So that's what intrigued me about the OIG's September 22 audit of Medicare Part B overpayments. After all, who couldn't love hearing one government agency tell another, you did this wrong? So at the risk of sounding like me too after Nicole's segment, I'll start by noting, and I don't say this often, this study is well done. In this case, the OIG identifies unambiguous duplicate payments for services rendered to patients at critical access hospitals. To do this, the OIG used PECOS to determine that COS and physicians were paid for claims associated with the same beneficiary, date of service, and service. The OIG found that the COS were overpaid by about $330,000 for services rendered by physicians who had not assigned billing rights. It also found that Max paid over half a million dollars to physicians who had assigned billing rights. Perhaps most problematic, these errors caused patients to be overcharged by $539,000. The total overpayment for readily recognizable duplicate bills was about $1.2 million. Overall, 60% of the physician claims and 40% of the hospital claims were improperly paid by the max. That error level would certainly merit additional scrutiny by other auditors if it weren't the government being audited. These numbers aren't huge, but consider how large they might be if all hospitals rather than just the cause had been included. One of the OIG's six recommendations struck me as particularly meaningful. That is that, and I quote, CMS should coordinate with the MACs to develop and implement claim system edits or alternative means to prevent and detect overpayments for professional service payments. This recommendation is not only directly on point, but it is entirely consistent with CMS' obligation to prevent fraud, waste, and abuse by limiting payment errors. Even more interesting, though, is the written response of Jaquita Brooks-Lashure. 
in her role as administrator, Brooks LeSure did not agree with the recommendation. She agreed with the other five. Her response boils down to three points, though. First, it's really hard. We've tried it before and failed. This is despite the fact that the OIG was readily able to do this with a simple database query. Second, it doesn't fit into current payment integrity models. This is government speak for why should we change? And third, we can t I like this one, we can take back more money elsewhere. Apparently, Brooks LeSure hasn't considered the possible widespread duplicate payments across all 5,500 or so hospitals in the United States. I'm not surprised by Brooke LeSure's rejection of the recommendation. I am surprised that she would be so direct about declining to act when the OIG has demonstrated a direct adverse financial impact on beneficiaries. As usual, the OIG also invoked the 60-day repayment rule. This is boilerplate language in OIG reports, but this time it has legs. Unlike cases related to subtle healthcare decisions or physician judgment, this is duplicate payment. These are bona fide technical errors leading to overpayments. These are extremely unlikely to be overturned on appeal. And the hospitals and physicians are now on strict timelines. For the rest of us, we're safe as long as Brooks LeSure thinks it's too hard to enforce these overpayments. We may have some questions. David. We sure do, John. So the first one is for you, Dr. Hirsch. So, uh, Ron, has the 2023 inpatient-only list been published? Yes, it has. So when the OPPS final rule gets published, there are addenda if you can find them. But to make it easy for all the listeners, I have posted it to my website, ronaldhirsch.com. Just click on the inpatient-only list tab. And also remind you, don't use the inpatient-only list. Don't use it. Use addendum B. If it's on addendum B with a status indicator of C, it's inpatient only, right? Remember the short descriptors can confuse you. You'll find total hip arthroplasty on the inpatient only list. But if you look at the code, that's for revision. So if you think hip arthroplasties all are inpatient only, you're gonna be in for a big surprise. I gotta say, Ron, I'm gonna be saying addendum B code C for the rest of the day. So Matthew, this next question is for you both. I think all of us might chime in. What's the thought on the public health emergency, which we know has been extended through January? What are the odds that it continues past then? So Matthew, we'll start with you, but you know, Ron, Nicole, if you have any wisdom afterwards. I won't be a betting man and put the odds on it, but I will say that it, this is the administration versus Congress, right? So even though Biden announced that the pandemic is over, um, Biden is being pressured certainly by the states and by others uh, and his administration um, to keep the PHE going, and he's going to stick to that. Uh, we saw that in the last couple of weeks, um, the Senate actually passed a, a resolution. Now, this is a Democrat-controlled uh, Senate, uh, passed a, 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 a bill that would have required uh, the PHE to end. Um, Biden has promised that he would veto anything coming from Congress that would require the PHE to end. So if Biden gets his way, and if he keeps that promise of vetoing, then I think we can see it um, uh, pushed uh, well beyond January. The other aspect to this is that um, the uh, PHE is also tied to the um, to the student loan uh, forgiveness that Biden uh, put out, uh, what, half a year ago now, and is now making its way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and so 
that's another reason why this uh, administration wants to keep the PHE open. Um, it was actually tied to the public emergency, not the public health emergency, but the inference being that um, he passed that uh, forgiveness under the auspices of a national emergency. Uh, and so it would be a bad time for that national emergency to go away uh, as that case makes itself to the SCOTUS. So uh, that's that, that just my pitch there. I think if Biden uh, continues to stay strong with his veto, then we'll see it continue. That's a legal question. HHS has, quote, promised to give a 60-day notice. You always talk about a, a um, hierarchy of, you know, a law, a regulation, a manual, an FAQ. Where does promise fall into that hierarchy? That is so should darn, we trust them? That is a darn good question, Ron. Um, uh I, I worry about that. I think the answer isn't clear, and I I would say I would want to argue it's binding. But there is there are many court cases that have said the government can't be stopped, and estoppel is the legal term for held to its word. Uh, so it's the thing I worry about. So um, it's a great point, Ron. All right, John, I'll turn it back to you. Uh, thanks for your great job pinch hitting for Chuck. Thank you, David. And that'll be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Tiffany Ferguson. Remember, you can listen to all of the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. When you do, rate us and give us a review. And one more thing before we go, be sure to listen to Talk 10 Tuesdays. They will be reporting on Z codes this week. Until then, I'm John Hall, sitting in for Chuck Buck. Have a great week, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.